Hi, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. If you've heard enough of these episodes, you might be able to sing along at this point. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I am very excited to be interviewing Hattie Jo. Hattie is a PhD student at the University of Montreal and Myla. Her research focuses on understanding how and why neural networks work, based on the belief that the performance of modern neural networks exceeds our understanding, and that building more capable and trustworthy models requires bridging this gap. Prior to Myla, she spent time as a data scientist at Uber and did research with Uber AI Labs. This was another long and very fun conversation. If you like empirical theory, I think this is really a great episode for you. Hattie's work is just phenomenal and very interesting. She's an incredibly thoughtful person, and I really can't wait to see what's next in her research journey. We have a number of really exciting guests coming up this year, so as always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Hattie Joe. Hattie, as always, our first question is a little bit about the origin story. So I know that you kind of started doing AI research as a side thing, and I'd love to know what got you interested in doing that in the first place. Mm, yeah, so I'll start a bit earlier when I first got interested in machine learning, because my undergrad was actually in business. I did... Um, my undergrad in finance mostly, and never thought that I would do anything sort of related to machine learning or anything technical. Um, but near the end of my undergrad, I was taking a class called value investing, where they teach you how to value stocks. And um, basically, they give you this template that you're supposed to fill in the inputs and output kind of the, the value of the stock. And I, want, I really wanted to automate this process because I'm lazy, but I realized, you know, a lot of these inputs that you need, um, you can pull from financial statements and things like that, but some of them are more discretionary. So things like, you know, how risky is the business model? How good is the management, management team and things like that? So um, thinking about how one might be able to automate things like this that can't be encode it into rules led me to discover machine learning and I was just really excited by the possibilities that you can do with with the skill set. So I kind of then decided to go down this path and you know learn learning about machine learning. Um and had a few different jobs that were more and more technical and eventually I was working as a data scientist at Uber. Um, and at the time, Uber had a team called AI Labs that worked on fundamental research. Um, and 
I saw a talk by um, Jason Yusinski and Jeff Clue, a talk they gave on AI neuroscience to the Uber audience. And they show this, um, you know, the, the performance of this neural network on classifying images, but also looking inside the neural network and seeing what individual neurons are actually doing. And that just was like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it was really um, interesting to me that we had this model that was so impressive, but it seems like as a field, we didn't really understand how it works and why it even works. Um, so that got me interested in doing research in deep learning and specifically in kind of understanding what's going on with these um, deep neural networks. I find it hard not to be kind of mesmerized by that almost emergent behavior where you look at a single neuron and you can understand its behavior very clearly. There's kind of the biological analog. You're like, okay, this thing just takes a set of inputs. It throws weights on them. It does a nonlinear activation. And then you throw a bunch of them together and look at what it does. It's kind of fascinating just to have to think about how that could possibly occur. And so in your own journey, it seems like you kind of went from this initial more applied interest. You wanted to look at predicting stock prices. And then you went over, not all the way to theory, but I guess to what you've described as more empirical theory. Did you ever hold mm -hmm. on to the more applied interests that you had when you just got started? It comes and goes, I, I think. Um, yeah, so there was a sense, I guess, when I was working at Uber and at the same time, I was kind of doing research on the side with some of the folks from AI Labs. And I really liked that in my research, it didn't matter if um, the thing that I was working on had any applied value for the company. Whereas in my job, I was working on things that had a clear impact. And so um, that's how I felt. That, that was something that really attracted me to research. This idea that you kind of just work on things that were intellectually interesting and that you're curious about. Um, but then after doing that for, you know, two years, I'm like, wait, what's the point of this, right? There's uh, this... You know, I, I can understand the feeling of um, wanting to work on things that has value for people, has value for society. Um, and a lot of times, really fundamental research, there is not a very clear connection to an application. So, yeah, I think it ebbs and flows. Um, but for now, I'm kind of in the middle, I guess. I like to have my work, you know, have the potential of being useful, but it doesn't have to be the the starting motivation. Empirical theory seems like a happy middle road. And at the same time, based off of what you were just saying, I often feel like there's a kind of bravery needed to engage in really deep fundamental research, just because of the fact that you're working on often really difficult problems that 
are about understanding things at a base level. And if you hit on the right understanding, if you do something there, there is a potential to make a really massive impact. But I think there's also that huge risk that you go down a wrong direction, that nothing ever happens. And if you keep yourself very much on the applied front, you, as you said, can more easily see a real life impact there. And so it it's really, I guess, just a, a difference in terms of how the kind of delayed gratification you might be willing to endure or delayed possibility of gratification and large risk of no gratification whatsoever. Mm, yeah, I mean, it is a good middle ground because you know, regardless of whether or not there's follow-up um, applied value that comes out of your work, is at least interesting to at least some people. So, like, if you gain some insight into how the models are working, even if it's not immediately clear how that may be useful, people are still interested because it's, you know, cool to know these things. Um, but, yeah, if you're working on apply things and you're taking a novel approach, perhaps it doesn't work and then nobody cares about, about the, the product, right? So there is kind of, um, I think it's a good uh, risk profile here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the best, I think, research question is when, regardless of what the answer is, it's still going to be interesting. So that sometimes happens in... Um, this kind of empirical theory, understanding deep learning type of work. Yeah, it definitely seems to be the case. So while you were at Uber AI Labs, you worked on this really interesting paper, Deconstructing Lottery Tickets. By way of introduction, do you want to tell me a little bit about what the lottery ticket hypothesis is in the first place, and then what you were looking to learn about it in this paper? Yeah. So the lottery ticket hypothesis states that within a randomly initialized neural network, there exists a subnetwork that, um, when trained in isolation, can achieve the same performance as the full network with you know all of the weights. So, practically speaking, this means that you can kind of prune the network. Um, have a sparse model and just train the subnetwork and still get the same performance. Um, and this is really interesting because one, it suggests that maybe there is some efficiency gains that we can have from only having to train, you know, fewer weights and, you know, have save on training costs and inference costs. And the other reason it's interesting is that it provides a perspective on why overparameterization might be helpful in neural networks. So the idea is that when you have a lot of parameters, um, you have more chances of having a lucky subnetwork within that model that just so happens to be a good starting point um, for this particular task that you're trying to learn on. So that's why it's called a lottery ticket. Um, you know, the subnetwork is a lucky initialization. And perhaps that's, you know, what's driving the uh, training trajectory of the model when you train the full model. Um, so that's kind of a cool 
you know, hypothesis for why over overparameterization might be helpful for deep learning. The question that we were trying to explore is what is going on here? Basically, so in the original paper, they showed that you can identify these lottery tickets by doing something called magnitude pruning, where you train the float network first, and then you keep only the weights that have large magnitude at the end of training. And that constitute your lucky subnetwork. So you rewind those weights back to its initialization and train just the subnetwork. And you see that you can achieve the same performance. Um, so it opens up a lot of questions like, why is this simple method of magnitude pruning able to identify these lottery tickets? You know, what makes these lottery tickets good uh, for training? And yeah, can, can other ways of identifying lottery tickets also work? So a lot of questions about basically what's going on here, what's responsible for the results that were shown in the original paper. The initial picture of overparameterization you were talking about, I think, presents kind of two interesting views or things to look at. So one would be the view of overparameterization and that you have part of the network, perhaps your your lottery ticket, that is doing most of the useful work in a network, really capturing what information you need to get out of the data. And then you have this kind of excess capacity left over. And sometimes it seems that this tends to act as something like a lookup table, perhaps memorizing difficult examples. And I think there's related work that's shown the way in which many pruning methods actually causes networks to while they might improve in performance overall, the sets of inputs, sets of examples um, that they do well on or degrade in performance on, there's kind of distributions of what's going on there, right? And I think there's some relation to your work here. There's also kind of the interesting view that you mentioned of initialization of these lottery tickets as a lucky initialization. And I think that recently we've seen a lot of views of pre-training as just providing good initialization for these large language models. Have you kind of spent time delineating some of those connections? Yeah, so I think, I mean, obviously the lottery ticket initialization is different from one that you might get from pre-training. So part of the perspective, I guess, that came out of the deconstructing lottery ticket paper is that the initialization, the subnetwork that you identify, actually contains some information about your data set. Um, because the way you identify that subnetwork is through taking information from a training process. So in some sense, you know, it is related perhaps to a pre-training initialization. Um, except, right, in this case, it's kind of on the same task as your downstream task. So, yeah, I guess, like, if you have an informed initialization that has some good general features that are already present, um, it helps you go down a learning trajectory that maybe leads to better generalization also. Um, 
And I think this idea also comes up in, you know, the fortuitous forgetting work that maybe we'll talk about after. Uh, this idea that you can start from successfully better initializations and that can help you kind of amplify what um, good features are contained in these initializations. So yeah, maybe there's some, some high level relationships here. Um, but yeah, I haven't thought too deeply about that. Sure. So in this work, when you were investigating these concepts of rewinding, you look at some different types of masking. I think you label them type one masking, type zero masking, if I remember the labels correctly. And you sort of study the effect this has when you kind of rewind networks, when you apply these masks to them. And you make this really interesting claim at one point that, quote, masking is training. Can you tell me a little bit about the study of masking that you did here and then what you meant by that claim in the paper? Yeah, so a really surprising thing we found while we're doing this investigation is that not only are these subnetworks, these lottery tickets, good at you know getting to a good final solution when you train them, they're actually already good at initialization before you do any training. So if you think about this uh, lottery ticket training procedure, you first train, say, the dense model to convergence, and then you look at the magnitude of the trained weights, and you set the weights with small magnitudes to zero, you prune those weights, and then for the remaining weights, you rewind them back to their initialization. So if you just measure this network at initialization after doing this rewinding and pruning, we found that the accuracy is actually already better than chance. So at initialization, the subnetwork is already containing some information about the task. And so why would that happen, right? The only thing that we changed is to apply this masking procedure by setting some weights to zero. So the the interpretation we had was that, okay, the weights that we're setting to zero are weights that ended up with a small magnitude if you train the full model. So in a way, for these weights, um, by masking them, we're moving them towards the weights, the values that they were, they would have gone to anyway if you had trained them. And so this is what we mean by masking as a training step, both that, you know, it makes sense based on kind of where we're sending the values to. It also makes sense based on the impact that the masking procedure has on sort of the, the randomly initialized model. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what we mean by that claim. And um, yeah, I mean, it has some interesting implications, I think. Um, so one implication it has is perhaps on this hope that people have about, okay, maybe we can identify subnetworks or lucky tickets, uh, lucky lottery tickets at initialization without having to do all this expensive training and pruning process. But maybe this perspective suggests that you could only find the subnetwork 
after you've done this training process because the pruning itself is part of the training. Um, so, you know, it doesn't preclude the possibility of being able to identify lottery tickets and initialization, but it suggests that maybe this is going to be harder than, than we think. The other interpretation that I think is not very common or not very intuitive for people is that we typically think of pruning as removing weights that are useless. Um, we're deleting these weights from the network. But our experiments kind of show that um, the weights that we're sending to zero are not useless. In fact, they are useful at the value of zero. Um, so your kind of the the subnetwork that remains is working alongside the subnetwork that you set to zero. And they're kind of, they have to be complementary to each other. And I think this is the reason why, um, you know, if you say randomly reinitialize the weights of the remaining subnetwork, it's not going to work as well. And also perhaps why it explains why the lottery ticket subnetwork will train to the same basin as the original network. So they'll like, train to a similar solution or solutions that are linearly connected. And you can kind of intuitively understand that this is because, you know, part of the ways are kind of already locked in. So you're locked, locking into a solution path because all of these ways are now set to zero. So I think those are some interesting, um, you know, implications of this perspective of masking as training. One thing I'm curious about when it comes to the setting weights to zero is what the picture might look like for really large networks or larger networks than you were looking at when trained for a really long time. If you were to start looking at the long-term training dynamics and things I have in mind, are like model interpolation, what happens beyond that threshold. If I remember correctly, you were studying this on CNNs that were like two, four, and six layers, right? And so mm -hmm. if you look at a network that's trained for a really long time, one thing I can imagine in line with the idea that perhaps a model over its training evolution perhaps forgets things, but then it also relearns them kind of not so subtly uh, making reference to another paper we're going to talk about soon. But at some point in training, maybe a set of weights start converging to zero, but then later in its training dynamics, it realizes, oh, wait, these were actually important for something or the other. One thing I kind of have in mind there was the study that I think Bean Kim and a few others did of the training dynamics of AlphaGo and the way it kind of discovered and then forgot concepts along that training. But anyway, I guess what I'm wondering there is the masking says, okay, these weights are going to zero anyway. So let's just actually set them to zero, accelerate part of the training process. But you could imagine that if you were to train a sufficiently large network on a sufficient amount of data for longer, perhaps at some point in training, those weights become important. Is that something you could imagine happening or that you'd have any intuitions about? 
So during training, I guess if you looked at the individual trajectories of weights, they're not going to be monotonically kind of moving towards their final position, right? If we're thinking of the idea that these weights are moving towards zero, that's not kind of how it happens during the training process. So, and the other thing is these weights are moving towards zero, but they're not actually zero, at least, you know, at the end of a, a dense model training. And that kind of maybe changes, right? Like, so the remaining weights are not going to end up in the exact same values as they were before in the dense model. Um, so I think definitely like the weights, I mean, individual weights may not have too much meaning, but they're definitely kind of going in different directions throughout training. And you have to do that for the whole network to kind of adjust itself um, as it trains. And um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely like information being forgotten and relearned throughout training too. Like if you look at the performance on an individual data point, you can see that the model could at some point learn to classify this image, but then later on forget again and then relearn that. Um, so it's not super clear how this mechanism works exactly. Um, there is actually this interesting observation from the LCA loss change allocation paper that showed basically just over half of your parameters are actually helping the loss um, at any given training iteration. So there's also a lot of noise that happens during the training process. So what I mean by that is every step that you take uh, with gradient descent, you update all of your parameters and only half of those updates are actually contributing to a reduction in the loss. And the other half are like moving in the wrong direction, essentially. So yeah, I think there's just a lot of like noise and movement and adjustment that we don't quite uh, understand during the, the training process. Yeah. One thing you had also mentioned earlier was the fact that we can do this masking, we can identify these sub-networks that are useful. It's something we can only really see after training, this kind of a posteriori knowledge. And as you said, it does make one wonder, what if there were a way to identify these things before we kicked off the training in the first place? And that's not really something that this research makes a claim on in one direction or another, as you were kind of mentioning. But I'm curious if you're aware of any work or have thought further about that possibility. I think there were many papers that tried to do pruning at initialization um, by maybe, for example, looking at one step gradient direction of the way updates and using that information. But then there was a paper that kind of looked at all of these proposed methods and compared them to um, a version where you just shuffle the weights. So basically, if you've actually identified a subnetwork that is particularly good, then if you shuffle the weights, that should no longer be good. 
but it turns out that it is basically like the performance is indistinguishable from some sort of random subnetwork. So that kind of is suggesting that maybe none of these methods are doing really anything more than something you can do with just random pruning um, or like a clever version of random pruning. I haven't seen anything recently that had better performance on these things. So it seems like maybe this is just a really hard problem or maybe maybe this is kind of not the easiest way to be doing more efficient training, I guess. That's fair. Let's talk about the next section of your title. So the sort of subtitle there was zeros, signs, and the supermask. So we talked about zeros. Now, another thing you investigated was the role of signs. And I think that you found in this rewinding of neural networks that you did to their initialization, the sign of weights was actually more important than the magnitudes. Can you tell me a little bit about that study and what you learned from it? Yeah, so we wanted to know what about this lottery ticket initialization is useful. And so we decompose the values into just the sign or just the, the magnitude or sign and the magnitude. And we basically try to keep each of those components and retrain the subnetwork and see what we get. And we found that just keeping the sign was enough to get kind of comparable performance to the lottery the full no lottery ticket and also the full network, um, which suggests that what was critical to keep in these subnetworks is just the relative signs. The magnitudes don't matter so much. And this suggests kind of that maybe, so we, we talked about this like basin of attraction idea for the solution that the model eventually gets to. And it seems that, you know, the model isn't super sensitive to the exact initialization values. It's able to get to that solution with just the right sign of the weights. Um, suggesting that, you know, maybe the space of attraction is pretty large and the model isn't super sensitive to perturbations in the initial conditions, or at least this particular form of perturbation, which is like changing of the magnitude. Um, so that was really interesting. The idea that the basin of attraction, I guess the size of it could be pretty large is interesting. And I guess one thing I can't remember if this how many different sort of magnitudes of initializations you tried in your paper, but I'm sort of curious how that would work out. So if you were to keep perhaps the relative weights or the relative magnitudes of the weights you initialize the same along with the signs, then kind of how far you can go in terms of messing with that, but then still achieving better than chance performance. Yeah, we... So the first time we tried this, we just set all the ways to like 0.1. Um, and that just like already worked. And at least for, you know, the simple uh, MNIST experiment. And in the paper, we ended up setting it to a value that was like proportional to kind of the initialization that we still, I don't think it would work, for example, if you 
set it to a really large value. So it is still sensitive, but within like a reasonable range of what normal initialization values are, uh, it seems to, you know, all kind of work. But this still depends on the particular task that you're looking at. Um, I think maybe for more complicated tasks, especially tasks that are more complicated compared to the capacity of your architecture, it may be the case that it becomes more sensitive to the initialization values. And maybe then the sign isn't going to be enough. But for the experiments in this paper, it, it was it was enough. And sometimes like even slightly better for, I don't know why <laughs> that happens. I can see that intuition, how the sensitivity to the magnitude could possibly depend on, as you said, the match between the network capacity, the problem difficulty. It, I think it's probably also related to the stability idea that um, was explored in, I think, the follow-up paper, Lottery Ticket at Scale, or maybe they changed the title, um, where you know it wasn't enough to rewind to initialization uh, for larger data sets and larger networks. So basically, if you scale to ImageNet, the original experiments don't hold anymore, and you need to rewind to the weights after a few epochs of training. And they were looking at this uh, from a stability perspective early on in training, and they found that for, for these larger data sets, it's more unstable early on, so you want to kind of skip that unstable period and I suspect this is related to stability so like how much precision you need in the weights is also related to how stable the training dynamics are and I think that's probably dependent on um, yeah the data set. That makes sense to me and I can see that relating to the basin picture that you've been talking about the fact that over the first few epochs for a sufficiently large data set you're not really in a regime of training yet where you've encountered enough of it to have a good statistically valid for some very loose definition of that phrase um, picture of the data generating distribution. But then after a few epochs, you do get within some region of the solution space of the solution basin that now your training dynamics are going to be a little bit less haywire and probably reading, leading you into something like the right direction when it comes to having having weight magnitude signs that actually correspond to what you're eventually going to be looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, he- I've heard that, you know, in some experiments, the sign observations don't hold, but then in some other ones they do, like as people try to scale up these these things so yeah um so that's that's my guess at what what's happening there tell me about the super mask the super mask is probably my favorite um idea in that paper it's uh building on top of this masking as training thing so we found that the mask that you get from magnitude pruning results in a network that is better than chance at initialization. So without any training of the underlying weights. Um, 
And so we, we kind of refer to masks that have this characteristic super mask. Basically, it suggests that, you know, not only, perhaps not only do randomly initialized networks contain subnetworks that are lucky initializations that can train to good performance, they are they contain subnetworks that are lucky enough to have good performance on your task without any training. So it suggests that yeah, within some randomly initialized network, you can find a subnetwork that performs well already on um, the task that you're interested in without training the underlying weights. So so that's the idea, and we showed you know a couple heuristics to identify these super masks and also one method of actually training uh, and learning to find these masks. And it it's really interesting because, first of all, it suggests maybe an alternative approach to training neural networks. So instead of training the weights, you can do a search over subnetworks of a randomly initialized model. Um, and um, the other cool thing that sort of is not really mentioned in the original paper, but that I'm most excited about nowadays is using this idea of masking um, as a way to probe a pre-trained model. So, in so the original supermask idea applies the mask on untrained weights, randomly initialized weights. Um, but you can also do this on top of any kind of frozen set of weights, including a pre-trained model. And you can try to find maybe subnetworks within that model that is responsible for certain characteristics um, or for learning certain features. And and yeah, that's something that, that you know, has been somewhat explored in follow-up work. And I am quite excited about that direction. That sounds really exciting to me, too. The first thing I wanted to comment on, though, before maybe talking a little bit about that is the picture you just presented of having, again, lucky subnetworks and these super masks as being able to identify ones that at initialization are better than chance. Intuitively, speaking to the picture of luck you mentioned earlier, I guess you would imagine that a more over-parameterized network is going to have more luck, as it were, if you were to perhaps hold the data set fixed or something. And to the search thing you were mentioning, there's that kind of interesting double view you now have of perhaps a sufficiently over-parameterized network, where on the one hand, it's just, I'm training this massive thing that is going to probably overfit to memorize aspects of my data set, or you could view it as this really big network in its training, sort of doing an architecture search over the subnetworks that already existed within it. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting way to, to phrase it. I think there's um, some theoretical work that kind of proves that with, you know, a sufficiently over-parameterized model, you can always find a subnetwork that works well. And the intuition is exactly as you're suggesting, like, with more weights to choose from, the chance that one of those combinations is good is going to increase as you increase the weights. It's also a potentially interesting 
um, I don't think this is, has been established, but potentially interesting way of uh, providing a regularization to the training process. If your training process was this mask search instead of training the weights, um, because now there's only a few ways right, that you can um, update the network and that could provide some like interesting generalization properties. Um, but I haven't really seen this being explored, but this is like, yeah, what, one potential difference that may come out of this different type of perspective on training, uh, going from like weight change to just like a search over a random space of subnetworks. That's something I'd be very excited to see someone study. The other thing you were talking about that was really cool was this idea of masks as a way to probe pre-trained models, perhaps for specific parts of the model that are responsible for interrogating certain characteristics of the input data. And that certainly connects, I think, to other work that has investigated ways of steering models or intervening on the concepts and things that they sort of look at. So I know that concept bottleneck models was one work from a couple of years ago that looked into this. And then we've also seen some more recent work that's looked into steering pre-trained large language models um, just in sort of certain directions, perhaps based off of the difference in weights between like a fine-tuned and then a pre-trained model, which I thought was really cool. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on just what it would look like in terms of, or I guess you, you were mentioning that people are starting to kind of explore this, right, of masking as an additional way to intervene on these pre-trained large language models and sort of steer them in particular directions in terms of perhaps desirable, undesirable behavior, things for them to pay attention to. Yeah, so I haven't seen people do this on large language models, but I would love to see it. But what I have seen, so there's this really cool paper called Supermass and Superposition. And the idea is that basically they're trying to tackle this problem of catastrophic forgetting in continual learning. So essentially, if you want the model to kind of continuously learn multiple tasks, it tends to forget about the tasks that it learned earlier on when it learns a new task. So this is kind of referred to as catastrophic forgetting. And the, the solution in that paper is basically you take kind of a, a pre-trained model, maybe train on a, a large data set, and you have these downstream tasks that you want to specialize to. And instead of fine tuning this model to each of those tasks, you find a mask that, when applied to the pre-trained model, generates good performance for a downstream task. And, you know, you can do this because, again, masking is a form of training, right? So it's possible to um, train a mask towards, like, a different objective. And so you can do, you can have a mask for each of your downstream tasks. And you will never have the issue of catastrophic forgetting because the underlying weights are never changing. And so at inference time, you can have some sort of clever heuristic to identify which 
mask you should be using. Um, but this is really cool because it's kind of like this idea that the pre-trained model, you know, maybe has a store of many different features. And by selecting different combinations of these features, you can adapt them to and specialize them to a different task um, just by kind of choosing a subset of the connections that exist within this model. So this is a, a cool perspective, I think, um, and, and why I'd be excited to see this in large pre-trained models, because you can imagine that story holds for large pre-trained models having all this like overlapping knowledge about things, but maybe they kind of interfere with each other when it comes to a specific downstream task. But if you can remove things that are you know, interfering and uncover the right combination, you can get good downstream performance. So that's something that I was, that I was really excited by. Yeah, the interference phenomenon is tricky, and I know a lot of people are working on that. It's kind of interesting, though, the picture you just presented, because you can think of that multitask learning or having a single multitask network as like architecturally just a picture of you've got this backbone, you get your representation, and then you have a couple of task-specific heads. But then in this case, now you've got sort of a full perhaps end-to-end network or something like that. And then the picture you presented at inference time is like the task-specific heads are really just these masks you're now applying to the network instead of something that's kind of locked on to the end of it. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's like some particular path through your whole network that is like good for this task rather than, you know, a, yeah, a new set of ways or a new head. Um yeah, I think there's some elegance to this if this is a true picture, which, you know, I, I don't think we've proven that, but yeah, it's interesting. There's also another paper that looked at kind of applying a mask on the the, the trained model, but um, on the same task, so not looking at a downstream task. Hmm. And they found that, you know, when you kind of, use this subnetwork that you identify. Um, and I think then also doing retraining. So almost using masking as a, a pruning technique, um, like to find a lottery ticket, what you end up having, uh, the model that you end up having has better out of distribution generalization performance. So that's also interesting. It's kind of like you've identified um, kind of the the core of the original model that was responsible for the good performance and kind of stripping away the other things that may be contributing to overfitting to the training distribution. So, I mean, this is sort of hand wavy, but that's like a cool um, application of training a mask for, you know, some other purpose. Yeah, intuitively, that does seem to make a lot of sense. One of the phenomena that you mentioned in regard to this was catastrophic forgetting. I will use that as a not-so-subtle segue into your work on fortuitous forgetting. Can you tell me a little bit about what fortuitous forgetting was and, and what you were getting at in this paper? 
Yeah, so the idea is that, um, you know, for humans, forgetting, even though it has a bad reputation, is actually a very useful process that our brain does to aid in learning. So there's a lot of evidence in cognitive science that show that forgetting has a symbiotic relationship with learning. And the question that we, you know, we're wondering about is, can the same be happening in artificial neural networks as well? Um, and we were seeing uh, several different works that do this kind of iterative training procedure to get better generalization or better compositionality and things like that. And we try to figure out if there's some common reason that all of these algorithms that are proposed um, is beneficial because, you know, all of them kind of have some speculation for why they work, why they contribute to better performance, but it's not really proven. And so we wanted to see if we can unify the picture for all of these different algorithms. And the hypothesis that we came up with is this forget and relearn paradigm, which um, which is a type of training process that comes in stages. So it's an iterative process. And in each stage, you have a forgetting component and a relearning component. In the forgetting component, you try to remove some undesirable information from the model. And then in the relearning component, you try to uh, retrain the model towards your desired objective. And you do this iteratively. And so the hypothesis is that when you do this, um, every time you retrain, you're starting from a better initialization that has less of the undesirable um, information and more of the desirable information. And you can build, um, you can iteratively amplify the desirable information within the model. So this can give you a way to steer the model towards um, desirable characteristics. And I, I'm using these words very loosely, but that, that is the kind of um, high level idea here. Sure. One of the things you mentioned was the relationship to some other work. And there was one that kind of got me thinking about the representation learning perspective on what's happening here, which was, I think it was called Rifle, where you mentioned that they were able to improve transfer learning performance by periodically reinitializing their final layer during fine tuning. And then this kind mm -hmm. of led to updates to low level features and previous layers. Can you tell me a little bit about if that kind of got you thinking about any questions and sort of that representation learning perspective on this as well? Yeah, so we also have some similar experiments in the paper that um, doesn't apply to transfer learning, but does reset the later layers of the network. And I think one of the questions there is, you know, when you reset the later layers, what is causing the improvement after retraining? Is it that you now have a better later layer? Because this later layer, like let's say the last layer, is now trained on top of 
better features in the earlier layers. And so you're able to, you know, through reinitializing and retraining, improve the features in that layer. Or is it the case that the features that are in the earlier layers are being kind of amplified because they're never reset? So they're continuously being improved every time you do this reinitialization and retraining of the last layer. And so those features get stronger and stronger. And we set up, you know, several experiments to test this. And the answer we concluded was that the second perspective seems to be the right one. So the features that are in the earlier layers are more general and they are basically being kind of amplified um, when they're continuously trained. So kind of similar to you mentioning that now basically there's signal propagating back to the earlier layers more than, you know, kind of a fully trained model that has low loss and small gradients. Um, so the other kind of subtlety here is that when you reinitialize the last layer, you're providing a new environment for the earlier layers to adapt to. And basically features that are easy to adapt to many of these environments um, intuitively is more general as well. So that's kind of another motivation or yeah, intuition for why these earlier layers are becoming um, uh, yeah, more, better generalization and better features. That makes sense to me. In in reading this paper and thinking about the training dynamics of a neural network over time, one connection that kind of arose to me was the overlaps between your work and then other recent work that's studied neural net training phenomena. Um, and in particular, what I had in mind was double descent, grokking, the information bottleneck paper. Um, so I'm curious if in sort of looking at that other work, whether you've thought about the connections between the forget relearn phenomena that you looked at on one hand, and then in, for example, double descent, the idea of, of this interpolation regime and what's going on there. Yeah, maybe we can start by saying that the grokking phenomenon sort of maybe is almost an example of potentially all three, even though that's not necessarily established. Um, basically, in grokking, there's a delayed generalization behavior. So your training accuracy goes up, um, let's say to 100%. And at this point, your test accuracy is still zero or close to zero. So there's no generalization. But if you train for a really long time, suddenly the test accuracy goes up. So yeah, so basically, and, and I think you can maybe see a double descent shape of some of the training curves in, in these experiments. Um, one perspective is that over this long training, uh, like after training losses or training accuracy is 
100, the model is basically consolidating in some sense, or, or maybe simplifying, or maybe finding the best fit of the solutions that fits the training loss or training objective while moving towards some inductive bias that the training procedure has. So it's constrained by, you know, as you move through the, the weight space, it's constrained by having to still keep a low loss, but it's, it's doing something else. So one thing it might be doing is that when you use weight decay, for example, when training loss is low, I think weight decay will then kind of be primarily responsible for the movement of the weights. So in a sense, you can imagine that the, the network is simplifying um, during this regime. And in, you, know, you can kind of connect that to the idea of forgetting. So like removing um, information that is not critical for doing well on your training set. So, yeah, I think maybe there's like some connections between these ideas. And, and actually for grokking, um, if you had applied the forget and relearn procedure on that, you do see grokking much faster than if you have normal training. So this, yeah, this is really interesting. You know, it's not direct evidence to say that Normal training is doing something that is similar to forgetting and relearn, but at least both of them kind of achieve a similar outcome. Um, but I think the, the connections are haven't really been well established. But yeah, so there are some interesting questions there. Sure. The inductive bias picture is really interesting too. There's a great blog post from a while ago on Double Descent called Inductive Biases Stick Around. And I think it makes the claim kind of at a high level where very early in the training of a neural network, the inductive bias sort of matters. But then as you kind of get into this pre-interpolation regime, that starts to go away. And now you're in the regime where it's kind of all just looking at the data. But then once you pass that regime, you come back to a point where, as you said, the inductive bias starts to matter again, which I thought was another kind of really interesting way of looking at that phenomenon. Yeah, I just, I don't know how to sort of establish that as the actual explanation for what's happening. I think it's quite difficult. Um, but I would be curious to see if, you know, people are able to draw a connection to information bottleneck, right? Because in, in that theory, they do say that when you train, you know, for a long time, what's happening is that the mutual information between your representation and the input is decreasing. Um, so in a sense, it's like removing information from the model. Um, and yeah, that, that was supposed to be helpful for generalization. So I do wonder if it can explain some of this grokking behavior as well. Yeah, there's a lot of cool work that I think explicitly establishes generalization bounds based off of like input output mutual information. 
And I know there's some like really heavily theoretical stuff. Like there's the Shurigansky paper from, I think, 2017 or so that does this. Um, very theoretical, but I think there are some important overlaps there. There's one final bit on this paper that I wanted to ask you about, which was in the final part of the con- part of the conclusion, you discuss this idea of features that are consistently useful under different learning conditions. And you note that the iterative training process that you do in this paper is pretty expensive. And so there is this open question of, could we develop algorithms that capture the same benefit without this iterative training process? And I'd love to know if you have either seen work investigating investigating that or have any intuitions on what such a training scheme could look like. Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't really I haven't really seen anything that tries to replace an iterative process. I've seen instances where you actually don't need an iterative process. Like you're able to just forget the right information. You don't have to keep doing this. Uh, you can do it in one go. Um, and I, I think maybe it's, I mean, it's questionable whether it's a worthwhile um, investigation to figure out maybe a a complicated way of getting at the same benefit because this is almost like another, you know, lesson from scaling, right? Like the iterative process is kind of taking something that works and just multiplying it and almost bootstrapping the process and it's easy. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of examples where if it works, um, it's kind of like, uh, especially with the absence of clear alternatives, it's actually not that bad. I think at the time of writing the paper, I really didn't like this aspect. But now, um, I think, you know, in, even in large language model field, we're seeing a lot of these iterative improvement approaches that I think is really interesting. And I don't mind that they're doing this iteratively, right? So for example, you have like papers that have the model generate some labels for the data set. And then you fine tune the model on those labels. And then you generate a new set of labels that are now hopefully a little better because the model is better. Um, So that's an iterative process that you can use. And I think that's actually quite elegant. So now, yeah, so this isn't a direct answer to your question, but this is my current feeling about this um, idea of an iterative refinement, which is actually quite deeply interesting as a as a paradigm of, of improving models. I think that's pretty fair. And in general, I guess what seemed to us to be large or expensive just a few years ago no longer feels that way now. So I do think that's a very fair perspective to have. In the regime of large things, you have another paper, very recent, very exciting, teaching algorithmic reasoning via in-context learning. And 
I have, I guess, a question wrapped inside another question to kick this one off, which is, I guess, a standard what is in context learning, but perhaps around that. What I note about the title of your paper is that the phrase teaching algorithmic reasoning really aspires to something, I feel, that sort of goes, it takes what you did and this paper as a starting point, but the aspiration kind of goes a lot further than that. So I'd also love to hear about the sort of broad vision for you and what you hope will follow from the initial work you did on algorithmic prompting in this paper. Yeah, I mean, it's true. We definitely had more ambitious visions for where this could go. But of course, that's yet to be realized. So to start, what is in-context learning? Um, Basically, with large language models, what it can do is completing the next token and completing sentences and paragraphs. So you can start the model off with a prompt or a string of text, and the model is going to complete from that starting point. And what people have found is that you can... um, provide information to the model within this prompt about a task that you want the model to do. So one way to do this is providing a few examples of um, input and target for this task and then append these examples with a test question that you want the model to answer. And the model is um, seemingly able to pick up on how to perform this new task from only seeing what you're providing in context, which is this prompt. So that's what people refer to as in-context learning or prompting. Um, And it's really exciting because it's a very flexible way of controlling what you're getting out of the model. Um, And it's really exciting because you can teach or maybe get the model to perform these tasks without having to change the underlying weights of the model. So the model itself can stay general um, and it can just interface with it to get you know, new behaviors out of it. Um, so in teaching algorithmic reasoning via in-context learning, we try to see if we can actually get the model to perform algorithmic reasoning um, by teaching the way to do that through this prompt. So the test bed that we are using is arithmetics because it's kind of been long observed that these models are still unable to robustly do simple uh, arithmetic questions, so like addition. Um, As the number of digits increase, the model accuracy on these questions will drop. And so we try to teach um, the algorithm for addition by showing the model examples of applying this algorithm and then ask the model to kind of do the same thing. And we found that the model is actually now able to generalize out of distribution to questions that are much longer and harder than the examples that we've provided. So it's showing that the model is actually 
um, solving this problem using the solution strategy that we've defined for it, which is why we're calling it teaching. Although, you know, I think that term kind of doesn't sit well with some people because it's in context learning. Um, it's, you know, there's no change to the model, but we do find that the, the model is actually using what is provided in context um, rather than using some of its pre-training knowledge to directly solve the problem. There are a lot of interesting pictures of that. And I guess the very basic picture of in-context learning is I have a task I want you to solve. Here are a few more pairs of inputs, outputs of this problem solved. Now, here is a new input for you to look at, solve the problem, do this analogy, provide me the summarization. And so you are now looking at these kind of diametrically, maybe not diametrically, but these kind of opposed things of, on the one hand, discover an input-output mapping, the in-context learning picture, but then I want you to do algorithmic reasoning, i.e., mechanistically applying a procedure that should be input independent. Can you tell me a little bit more in detail about that prompting strategy, what that looked like? And I suppose for the test bed that you used for arithmetic, what it meant to provide your model with an, a demonstration or an explanation of what was going on that was non-ambiguous enough for its behavior on new training or on its testing examples to be a little bit more mechanistic in nature. Right. So in order for the model to perform algorithmic reasoning, like you said, it needs to be able to kind of generalize mechanistically, um, generalize by actually following the same rules to a new test example at a distribution. Um, and the fact that you know we were able to do that with whatever prompt, right? Just the fact that the model is capable of exhibiting this behavior um, is really interesting. And I think this actually points to the bigger picture that we were hoping to start with this work, um, which is just this, this idea of like, can we treat language models as students in school where we can kind of teach these skills to the students and build on top of these skills? Because the model, you know, have shown, we've demonstrated that the model has kind of these underlying capabilities of learning these kind of skills and, and doing this kind of reasoning. So um, that's sort of where we're hoping to go. But in terms of the actual strategy that we use, um, basically imagine someone explaining to you how to do addition. You would start with the rightmost digits, add them up. You know, if there is a carry, keep track of it, and then move on to the to the next digits. Um, and you know, when you're taught this in school, you're given like, here are the actual steps that you need to do. Here are the equations. Here are the, this is the addition equation that you need to use for each of the digit sums. 
And a lot of times with language models, um, people don't go into that level of detail when trying to get the model to do something because it feels like this is obvious, right? If I say add up the two numbers, you should know I mean this is what I mean. Um, if I say you know keep track of the carry, you should know the carry is one when the sum is greater than ten, zero otherwise. But I think this is assuming a lot about the you know bias that the model has to interpret these um, sentences. So the idea is try to provide as much um, detail to disambiguate what we mean by each of these steps so that we can have more of a robust behavior from the model um, and get it to do what we want. So yeah, I guess that's sort of the, the motivation, right? So if you, for example, um, show the addition algorithm by just showing, you know, for each step, the carry value here is this without explaining how that carry value is derived. With a limited set of examples, there are many valid potential rules that could explain your observations that you provided. So I think in a way, we can't really fault the model if we're not doing what we want. Um, and we found that yeah, when you have very explicit demonstrations, the model is able to pick up on the pattern and actually flexibly apply them to new situations. The picture of in-context learning as a phenomenon felt kind of mysterious when it was first being observed. And I know there's been work since then studying what exactly is going on. I'm curious if your study of algorithmic prompting and in context learning so far, has given you any intuitions on what exactly is happening within context learning? Yeah, I think um, one interpretation I really like is the induction head hypothesis from um, Anthropic, which is kind of saying that what is happening in, in context learning is that at you know, the current token output, the model is looking within the context for a pattern that is similar to the pattern that's immediately before the current output and looking at what came next in that previous example and then outputting something that is similar. And so this is kind of what they call an induction head. And you can do this in abstract ways, right? You don't have to find an exact match, you can kind of find a um, a similar match by some sophisticated, you know, metric. Um, and I really like this. And I think the success of algorithmic prompting, and in particular, the importance of having demonstrations and not just descriptions of what you need to do, but actually showing it in examples. Um, kind of leverages that idea because now we've converted the question into, well, we've essentially converted algorithmic reasoning into a pattern matching question. So now the model has to, you know, at each step of the output, find something in the prompt examples that looks similar, see what happened there next, 
and kind of apply that same relationship. Um, and we know models can do this, right? We know models are good at pattern matching and having these demonstrations also makes this process easier, you know, per the induction head hypothesis. So if you only had instructions, it would require a much more abstract similarity metric to get to the same answer. Um, so yeah, I think I really like that interpretation because, you know, it seems to explain some of why algorithm prompting is so successful in, in doing these kind of outer distribution generalizations. There is a cool natural link there. Another series of papers that I found kind of neat recently has been the ones that are trying to establish this relationship between in-context learning and gradient descent, which is a really interesting picture because in-context learning, it feels like, well, literally you're not updating the weights of your pre-trained model anymore. And so in one picture, that's like, well, even if I have a new task, it's able to do that well, quote unquote, without further training. But some of these works did this really interesting set of derivations to look at like a, a dual form between gradient descent and then linear self-attention. And then they kind of take that linear self-attention picture forward and understand in context learning as this kind of implicit fine tuning where the transformer attention is like doing a meta optimization. And then in its forward pass, it basically is implementing gradient descent. Um, and so there's kind of a weight update going on there. Um, and the I guess the big difference, though, is that the, the pre-trained LM is producing like meta gradients according to the demonstration examples through its forward computation. Whereas, of course, in fine tuning, you are actually getting like real gradients through the back propagation process. But the it's a simplified picture, but it seemed kind of cool to me. At the same time, though, in thinking about your work, the fact that it's not just a set of inputs and outputs, which I think is the most natural version of in-context learning to look at for this gradient descent picture, you're also providing like explicit instructions in your prompts to make them non-ambiguous for a model. It, it, I guess it felt to me like the gradient descent picture at least as it currently stands. I'm curious how it'll evolve, but the current picture felt a little bit insufficient for understanding what's going on in the algorithmic prompting that you're doing. Yeah, I haven't dug into the detail of that work, but the idea that you can kind of draw theoretical connections between the two is seems really cool. So I'm excited to see how people are able to kind of further establish that connection. Um, for me, the intuitive picture, which is kind of the one I'm trying to um, illustrate maybe with the algorithmic prompting for what's happening with in-context learning or what's happening with prompting is essentially, you know, how, how how are these models trained? It's trained to kind of output the most likely token given a previous string. So when you're just training on, you know, a large corpus of natural language information, there are 
you know, many reasonable next tokens that could come or many reasonable um, sentences that are maybe equally likely. And I think what maybe intuitively, you know, what, what we might be doing with providing a prompt is to constrain the potential options that make sense that are likely for the model. So now the model has to output something that's likely given all of this previous information, and that's going to really constrain the, you know, the space of possible outputs. And I think the main goal with interacting with LLMs is basically how do we make sure that the most likely output, you know, per the training distribution is the output that we want from the model. And one way we can do that is by kind of providing all this like constraining information so that the model's output has to be consistent with all of this previous information. Um, another way maybe you can do this is by doing this sort of fine tuning that people are doing, you know, like instruction fine tuning or, or things like RLHS. Um, or, so basically you're kind of increasing the likelihood of certain type of outputs from the model. So I, I kind of think all of this are just doing this constraining process um, so that we can get to the, the spot in the search space that is desirable for us. One thing I believe you, you've commented on, it may have been in the paper, was the idea of algorithmic prompting as a possible strategy for discovering novel algorithms to achieve a task. And in what you're saying, there's this kind of trade-off between how specific you make your prompt, how constrained you allow your LLM to be, and then how, quote-unquote, creative it can get in the techniques it applies to provide a solution to a given task. And so the algorithm discovery seems like, okay, let's loosen the reins a little bit and give it some creativity and then see, okay, does this come up with some interesting procedure? And I'm curious if that's something you plan on investigating or, or that you've thought about. Yeah, so we actually don't make any claims that algorithm prompting will help with algorithm discovery. I think those are two different problems and i don't i don't think like you say this strategy is not meant for um discovery the strategy is meant for robust robustness and getting out of distribution generalization so algorithm discovery i think is a much harder problem and so far what we have is just if you were able to have an algorithm, the model can actually learn it and apply it, which is, you know, a nice first step, but it's kind of not the the hard aspect that maybe we want. And yeah, I, I'm interested in knowing how the models can learn to discover algorithms and can learn to generate hypotheses um, and testing them. So, yeah, maybe, you know, the way to do that is by prompting it to do that. But it's, yeah, it, it's not clear um, 
I think the model is just probably some sort of fine tuning or uh, some sort of fine tuning is probably required to get the model to be in this space where you're coming up with hypotheses. This is something that is not typically done, I think. Um, a lot of the work that tries to kind of discover the right solution gets the model to output many possible candidates of the solution. And they try to like do something like majority voting or ensembling of the solution, which is I think a really cool approach, but it's not enough for what we want. It's not asking the model to generate hypotheses that then it can test. So I think there's some, some gap there between you know current approaches that I think is an interesting research direction. What's next for you in line with what you began investigating in this paper? So what I just mentioned would be one um, possible direction. Another one is, you know, we can try to push the limits of algorithm prompting and see how, like, what other types of questions we can solve with this. Where are the limits? But another question that I'm really interested in is, doing sort of reasoning that are not rigid the way that algorithmic reasoning is because that's sort of the one big area that this approach doesn't cover, right? The whole the whole um, approach for algorithmic prompting relies on this robust and rigid template that the model can follow. Um, so it kind of misses a whole other type of reasoning that we may want. So I'm curious to explore that. Um, I'm curious to explore the idea of the model like reflecting on its outputs and maybe thinking about its output by reflecting on its output and maybe by being critical of its output and try to poke holes in it. Um, so yeah, those are some general directions that I maybe interesting in yeah exploring next. You presented this algorithmic prompting work at the math and AI workshop at NeurIPS. It seems like there were a lot of interesting research directions and papers this year. I'm curious what stuck out to you. There was one paper that I saw that is actually kind of related to the forgetting stuff that I thought was really interesting where they identified examples that were contributing to certain classes or certain categories of test errors. So training examples that were not good, basically. And then they did like an explicit um, fine tuning process to forget those training examples. And they showed that they were able to um, improve those error categories that these examples are responsible for. So that was really neat. I was surprised that that works, you know, that you're able to just like explicitly erase information from the model. And and in general, I'm interested in like all of these papers that do these iterative refinement or iterative self-improvement of large language models. I don't remember if they were all, you know, published in Europe, but um had a lot of discussions 
while I was there about this direction, which is which is really exciting. Yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot of interesting directions for for iterative training to go, and especially when you start getting on the scaling regimes, as we were kind of mentioning earlier, and you're dealing with very large data sets and very large training schedules where you have these like very different regimes of training and things going on. It's kind of interesting um, to imagine the different directions that might go. One thing I'm curious about is just as somebody who is engaged in this research, it does seem like most of the attention right now and most of the discourse is around things at a particular scale, language models of a certain size. And you also, though, have done research at a much smaller scale with like two-layer CNNs, for instance. And it seems like there are still some very valid scientific problems that can be investigated at small scale. But I'm curious, just as somebody who has been going to conferences, publishing work, how you view the set of scientific questions that people are kind of willing to entertain right now and whether there's anything that you find kind of under-discussed or that you wish were paid more attention to that seems to be getting overlooked right now. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of PhD students are probably having this crisis of trying to figure out where their research agenda fit in with what's happening right now in this field where like these large models are getting crazy impressive performance. Um, especially if you were working on things like, you know, trying to find failures of existing models and finding tricks or ways of improving them and you see that actually all of these failures goes away if you just scale. Um, it can be, you know, bring into question what um, are the most potentially impactful questions, which I think have changed um, because of, you know, what's going on with, with large models. So, yeah, it, it is, you know, it is slightly... Um, disappointing now that like there's this convergence of what what things are interesting I think maybe that's not the best thing to do for the field I think it's always better when people are exploring you know really different ideas um so yeah I mean yeah so for example like something like compositionality probably will appear with scale and so there's a ton of research that went into that that maybe won't actually be useful you know going forward um so yeah i think that's there is definitely changes in the landscape for interesting research questions stuff that's underlooked i mean i think maybe everything that's not language model related is probably <laughs> underlooked these days. So I, I'm not really well versed in, in these topics, but I would love to see 
more that studies like interactions between Asians or interactions between a population of models. I think maybe that is something that I don't see a lot of, but will become really important when we want to apply these things to the real world where maybe they need to interact with other humans or just like the potential of getting more out of like collective intelligence of agents or models working together rather than like the current paradigm which is sort of one giant model that gets bigger and bigger and does everything like could it be that you know a population of smaller and maybe more specialized models could achieve better um output due to this like emergence of this um like collective intelligence sort of dynamics so that that's something that i think might be interesting and i don't really see um being done very often another semi-related but seemingly very important area of study i think would have to be the human model interaction component of things just what does it look like to imagine the system that you're looking at as not just the model itself, but this whole thing of the person, the interface they have with whatever model is being deployed in a certain scenario, and then the model itself, and kind of trying to design that whole thing from the interaction to the information passed between things. Um, that that also seems like a really kind of important, more expanded picture as well to me. Yeah, that would be really important with all the startups that's going to come out now <laughs> that leverages this technology. I, I think that's like the core problem probably that startups need to solve to differentiate themselves is just how well is the human interaction experience. So yeah, that's definitely super interesting. As perhaps a place to begin closing up, as somebody who is in the middle of a PhD right now, um, I guess it's a very interesting time, as you said, to be doing a PhD. I'd love to know just your perspective on the broad academic research publishing culture that we have right now, what your experience with it has been like, um, what you like and dislike about it. Yeah, I mean... I'm not a huge fan of the publishing culture. I think, you know, the number of papers that go on archive each day is just exploding. And I think there's definitely benefits to getting all of this, you know, stuff out there. Um, but there's also a lot of harms. Namely, like, it's hard to kind of find good and useful and relevant information from large number of papers being published every day and it's also stressful to be a researcher that now you think okay you're supposed to write a paper every few months and you know a lot of PhD students are in this boat where they have to publish papers get them accepted into conferences in order to graduate and that's maybe not the right 
um, objective or the right criteria to measure how well you are doing in your PhD. And I think it also encourages, obviously, working on research that's more short-term, that's more in line with what most people are interested in because that's the easiest way to get published. And that's, you know, somewhat of a disservice kind of to the scientific field as a whole when people are not encouraged to explore alternative paths. So, and, and yeah, I also think the, the load on the reviewing process is so large that that process just is really difficult to get right. And that kind of generates a lot of wasted effort um, and a lot of noise. So I think there's a lot kind of that is making the PhD process maybe more and more stressful for people. Um, but on the other hand, um, I also don't like, you know, the idea of potentially like working on a large project with a large team and actually keeping it all private and never publishing um, in a way that's really attractive because you're kind of doing something long-term. But being able to share your findings with the community is sort of the best part, I think, of being a researcher. It's like the most fulfilling part for me personally. So, um, so right now for me, I'm trying to find this happy medium where I'm doing some work that helped me kind of advance in my degree, but also trying to keep the motivation for doing things that are just interesting and curious and maybe not going to be very popular, at least for now, but could potentially like inspire some new ideas. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a tricky time, I think. And I think maybe PhD doesn't make sense now nowadays for a lot of people mm-hmm. as well for, for these reasons. It feels very difficult to have to manage that balance between having to kind of stay relevant, as it were, but then also wanting to work on those really meaty, probably long-term projects that you might want to investigate. I remember Yoshua Bengio, I think, had a post a while back. This was probably a few years ago now, where he, I think, entertained some of the same doubts as you do about the current publishing culture in ML. And his, I think something towards a proposed solution was kind of this hybrid where journals kind of serve the, I guess, prestige-ish role that conferences seem to now, where they're kind of the main venues of, okay, I've published a work that seems to be valued by the community. And then conferences become more or less this more regular perhaps something similar to what archive is now. So, you know, you have this work that's in progress, you have some initial results, you have smaller things that you've done and want to share them with the community. And so you kind of retain those benefits. I figure there are reasons why that hasn't happened yet. And I think it's a lot more difficult than just declaring, I want things to be this way. But it would be kind of interesting to see the publication culture move in that direction. And I am curious how 
Well, it, it does feel like something that might help promote the kinds of incentives, the more desirable incentives that you're talking about, allowing people to spend time on those problems and it kind of being accepted that, okay, journals are really the venue of publication. And since they have that longer review cycle, it's like, okay to be publishing at a cadence of a paper a year instead of a paper a month or something. But it's it seems like we're it seems like there's a gap between where we are now and something a little bit more idealized like that. Yeah, I think part of the the problem is or maybe twofold. One is there is a lot of people doing deep learning research and so the field moves very fast and so that just gives you a time pressure especially if you're working on stuff that a lot of people are interested in if you are not done with your project in you know a reasonable time probably someone else would have done it so yeah so so that part i don't know how to fix right because that's kind of the thing that's inherent in like if you want to work on this topic and a ton of people are interested and yeah this like prestige thing is unfortunate byproduct of having a lot of opportunities available that are like you know high paying jobs or you know prestigious kind of positions to be in if you have good publications that incentivizes people wanting to get their papers like reviewed and selected and that like means something so yeah i think there's some like systemic issues that make it hard to just change the conference process or the review process but i'm not sure how how to alleviate those things well on that happy and certain note i think this is probably <laughs> a good place to close up well, Hadi, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me today. I, I really appreciate your work. I hope listeners will also go take a look at your papers. You have a lot of very interesting research, and I am excited to see what you do next. Yeah, thanks a lot, Daniel. Thanks a lot for having me, and it was really fun to chat. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.